podcast of the Lead Centre Vedante Studies. Welcome to the 14th episode in Conversations on Dante, a podcast series from the Lead Centre Vedante Studies. I'm Matthew Traherne, and in this series I'm talking with researchers and practitioners whose work can help shape our understanding, his context, his works, and his place in the cultures of the world. Now, Dante's account of purgatory is full of riches. It takes the still quite new tradition of writing and thinking about purgatory and fills it with surprises in terms of its structure, the nature of the suffering and purgation that takes place in purgatory, the location of purgatory, the activities of the souls in purgatory. And Dante's Purgatorio tends to be seen as a sort of summit in the history of the idea of purgatory. Famously, Jacques Le Goff, the great historian of purgatory, sees it as a sublime conclusion in the tradition of writing and thinking about purgatory, which fixed the realm of purgatory in the public's imagination. Well, my guest today is Rebecca Locke, and Rebecca has looked closely at the ways in which purgatory was represented in Italy during the centuries after Dante wrote his account. And through frescoes, altarpieces, manuscript illuminations, commentaries and poetry, she finds a rather different story. As we'll hear, Rebecca's work shows that many traditional ideas about purgatory seem to persist in the centuries after Dante wrote his account, despite Dante's innovations in the Purgatorio. Now, Rebecca's research on purgatory in Italy in the centuries after Dante was carried out for her PhD at the University of Bristol, which she was awarded in 2020. Her thesis is available online. I've posted a link to it together with this podcast. I found talking to Rebecca absolutely fascinating. She really challenged a lot of my assumptions about Dante and his place in the history of the idea of purgatory. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Rebecca, it's really nice to see you on this cold evening. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And I, I really wanted to speak to you because I found your research so interesting on the history of purgatory after Dante. You know, I thought our listeners would really enjoy hearing a little bit about your work. I suppose the first question really is, what brought you to the topic? How did you get interested in researching the history of purgatory after Dante's Purgatorio? Yes, so I studied Purgatorio and Paradiso in my final year at university, and I really didn't know very much about purgatory at all at that point. And I really got interested in Dante's realm. And we talked a lot about how unique it was. But for me, I didn't really know very much about purgatory before Dante. And so I wanted to find out a bit more about why Dante's purgatory was so unique and so different. And this really led me into a research master's where I looked at purgatory before Dante and that development in sort of visionary literature and theological writing, which was really interesting. And I sort of compared that with what Dante was doing. Towards the end of that project, I started to think a bit more about reception, like what happens after Purgatorio and what happens with the representation of purgatory. And I looked actually at the Città di Vita, which is a poem by Matteo Palmieri, which has quite a, a heavenly idea of purgatory within it. And during that year, I also went to the National Gallery 
and saw an amazing altarpiece of the Assumption of the Virgin by Francesco Botticini. And that altarpiece is sort of linked to Palmieri's poem. So that got me thinking about artistic representation of the afterlife as well and how that might be linked to poetry and whether there were examples that we could think about with Dante. And so that's really how I came to the idea for my PhD to look more broadly at Purgatory's representation after Dante in literature and different sort of visual art mediums. So I was interested in that from the beginning. But once I began my actual PhD, the sources that I was looking at sort of changed a bit, as is normal, I think, but just looking into where I could find these representations of Purgatory. And in your PhD, you go on a fantastic journey through different types of sources, both visual and textual, for trying to understand the ways in which the idea of purgatory developed in the centuries after Dante in Italy. And I suppose testing the idea of trying to ascertain really how far Dante's vision of purgatory, which is so distinctive and unique in lots of ways, how far that vision had an impact so the first set of examples that you look at, at least in, in the PhD thesis, are taken from manuscript illustrations. What did you find in the manuscript illuminations that told a story about how the idea of purgatory as Dante was presenting it was being shaped visually? I think it was really interesting for me to look at manuscript illuminations of Purgatorio because I wanted to see how Dante was being received initially and whether this realm of purgatory was seen as unusual or different in any way to what had come before and how people were depicting this very different realm geographically and I found particularly the use of fire in some of the examples to be quite interesting because we have one manuscript, the Egerton manuscript that I looked at, shows Dante and Statius and Virgil, three souls, passing through fire. So fire is really used as a border that is to be transitioned, so we're moving from the Terrace of Lust into the earthly paradise. Another manuscript, the Holcomb manuscript, doesn't depict fire at all, which... It's quite interesting because fire is one of the few things that seems to come up a lot with purgatory. It's very common in the visions beforehand and indeed in theological writings. So it's not presented at all in the Holcomb manuscript. We, we see instead Dante passing through water in the earthly paradise. So there's more of an idea of baptism there. And in a Yates Thompson manuscript I was looking at, we see a focus really on the fire around the souls and the punishment of the souls. And we know that there was a lot of confusion about whether fire was meant to test a soul, to punish a soul, to purge a soul. So even in these images where they are depicting purgatorio, there's still different focuses on what fire actually is and what the purpose of it is. We then also have a, an example of a manuscript, a Palmer manuscript, where we have a very, very different idea. And there is a mountain with three separate caverns, which each have fire. And we have one soul praying in the flames, but another is sort of completely upside down in the flames. And this is a very, very infernal sort of image of purgatory to open Dante's Purgatorio, which does not start with fire at all. So this is a very different portrayal of the realm to that which Dante writes about. And so I found that really interesting that these illuminators are, are probably drawing more on visionary traditions here, such as St. Patrick's Purgatory, for example. So there's a, a lot of 
different uses of fire and these really give us a different idea if someone was looking at those different images a very different idea of what purgatory might be if you're about to read it your expectations are different so I found that really interesting in the manuscript illuminations that even manuscripts that were illuminating a poem were so different in many ways to each other it's so interesting, isn't it? Because Dante's purgatory would have had so many surprising elements to his early readers. And that sense of people's expectations of purgatory, fire would have played such an important role in that. And Dante works very hard to confound those expectations, <laughs> delaying the presence of fire until very late in the text. And I suppose what the illuminations or what your analysis of the illuminations is starting to tell us is a story where actually those early expectations or the pre-existing expectations of what purgatory was like were persisting beyond Dante's text. Absolutely. And I, I think this is something that my thesis really goes on to show in representations of purgatory that are not of Purgatorio. So I look at some altarpieces and at some frescoes, which some have a less certain presence of purgatory than others, but it really demonstrates looking at these images that that ambiguity that surrounded both the geography and the spiritual purpose of purgatory before Dante actually continues after his poem. And Dante is presenting such a clear geographical realm. It's very clearly laid out. And in that sense, its spiritual purpose is able to be made very clear as well. Whereas following on in the altarpieces, we don't really see this tripartite division of the afterlife. We have quite a confused geography a lot of the time. Purgatory's location in relation to other realms of the afterlife is also quite different in, in different variations. So in some we have paradise sort of next to purgatory, in others it's closer to hell or to limbo, and some it's, it's not really that clear where the boundaries of purgatory are or if it's there at all. So that carries on. We also have very different ideas of punishment. We, we see fire a lot, but we sometimes have very violent punishments occurring with devils conducting them but in other frescoes we have angels in the realm of purgatory so we have this confusion between whether purgatory is sort of linked more to hell or whether it's linked more to heaven and I think the linking to heaven is newer I think before Dante we do see purgatory it emerges out of hell and it does tend to be not so much linked to the hope of salvation and we do start to see elements of this hope for salvation appearing in subsequent altarpieces. For example, there's a predella panel by Lorenzo di Niccolò in which we have the portrayal of St. Lawrence helping souls out of a very fiery purgatory. And we have on the left of the image, we have a gate to heaven. And so there is this idea that souls will progress and ultimately enter heaven. However, the actual purgatory that is portrayed is simply with flames, so its boundaries are quite unclear. There are lots of devils in there torturing souls, and there's no real clear sense of a progression or a transformation of the souls themselves, which we have with Dante. And so this ambiguity is really reinforced by the fact that St. Lawrence leans across 
and grabs the, the hand of one of the souls who's dressed in white, so he's meant to have completed purgation. But at the same time, a devil is also holding on to this soul on the other side. And so there's a sense that St. Lawrence is really having to work. He's having to save this soul, pull him out of the purgatorial flames. And this suggests that the soul itself has maybe less agency. And it's not about the individual improving and being transformed by the realm of purgatory, which I think Dante shows how his realm is facilitating that transition and that individual internal transformation. But this is not really seen here. And indeed, in lots of the altarpieces and frescoes, the focus appears to be on a saint, such as the Virgin Mary or St. Lawrence or St. Michael, and their role in actually helping souls out of purgatory and having that divine intervention to get you out rather than having that internal transformation occurring. So I found that really interesting and, and seemed to come up in quite a few examples that I was looking at. I'd say it's incredibly interesting and part of what I found really eye-opening in reading your work was the way in which really when we tell the story of purgatory, the history of purgatory, so often we hold up Dante's Purgatorio as a sort of summit or a peak point in the history of purgatory. So we think about the history prior to Dante Think about how Dante kind of adapts those norms about purgatory, plays with some of the, the ambiguity, as you say, that there was around the nature of purgatory. But then the assumption is that, you know, that's a kind of culmination of the tradition. And actually, I suppose what your work is doing is showing that the story is really quite different. And Dante doesn't transform people's understanding of purgatory, at least not in straightforward ways his audiences, you know, much as he wants to change people's minds and change people's lives, actually the imagination, the Christian imagination retains this strong attachment to earlier models of purgatory from, from what they'd been before. It's really important and interesting in terms of how we think about Dante's place in that longer history of purgatory. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I very much set out when I started my work thinking, okay, so I'm going to look for examples where Dantean influences, and I was expecting to find quite a few examples and to see that shift really from a hellish purgatory towards a more hopeful purgatory where purgatory is facilitating salvation. And I think I was expecting to find more of that. And then when I didn't sort of really changed my whole perception of what was going on, and took a lot of thinking of, okay, what, what am I going to do with this now? And how am I going to go forward with this project with what I'm finding? But for me, that was what I had read. I'd, I'd been led to think, okay, well, Dante is all of these ideas about purgatory are then brought together here in Purgatorio. But to me, it's almost more shocking that given how concrete the realm is and how amazing, how rich it is visually, that those ideas were not picked up on. Purgatory has very little in church doctrine that sort of explains very much about what purgatory is, where it is, even what happens there. And so to have such a clear realm laid out by Dante and then to not have that seen later on was very surprising to me but shows that kind of persistence of visionary ideas and well lots of other influences as well. It probably says something as well about how Dante is being read and much as his theological interests are they're currently being you know re-evaluated by scholarship and taken seriously in a way that they haven't been before but perhaps it's showing that actually his text isn't being read as an authority about the nature of the afterlife 
for example. It's not going to shape how the church thinks about purgatory or the kind of images that are going to be put up above an altar or in a church showing purgatory because Dante's text is just not seen as an authority in those matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's that tension between, you know, who is the authority really in, in terms of purgatorial imagery and definition, because, you know, it's certainly not coming from the doctrine of the church, which is very, very vague and minimal at this point. And so it's really interesting to see how people approach that realm. And I, I would say that it was quite hard to find depictions of the realm. I think they are not that common. And I think that was also a very interesting discovery because clearly people were unsure how to depict this realm. There weren't models to follow. So I think who is your authority in this situation is a very interesting question to think about. And I think that could also be why we see a lot of purgatory representation in relation to saints and saints' lives and in relation to the last judgment. So depictions of the last judgment, we often see a purgatory included. So it's being included as part of other traditions rather than the sort of realm or tradition in its own right to be depicted. And so there could be that tension there of maybe that's why it's sort of being included, but not as the main event, so to speak. I find this absolutely fascinating, really, because I suppose, you know, I tend to think about purgatory as playing quite an important role in people's devotional lives, something that people have a strong emotional investment in at the time when Dante is writing and, and before and just afterwards. You would imagine praying for your dead relatives, your loved ones, hoping for your own time in purgatory to be accelerated. And yet this sketchiness about what purgatory is like is fascinating to kind of put these two things together you know the importance of purgatory in people's spiritual lives in their devotional lives in their sense of community the bonds between the living and the dead between human beings and yet it's not informing a rich visual tradition at least as far as we can tell and I think that the centrality of purgatory to that penitence at this time is incredibly important and I do find that quite shocking because it would be a way to encourage that through image. I think I wanted to look at, but didn't manage to look at sort of sermons and the way that purgatory was being taught to people. And I think that might be a really interesting area to look at because I think we could find out maybe a bit more about what people were being taught about purgatory at this time. But obviously in the visual sense that I'm looking at, that there wasn't that much. I'm jumping ahead kind of historically. I know that your thesis goes as far as the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent seems quite keen to stamp down or to clamp down on speculation about the nature of purgatory. It's quite explicit that preachers should not spend time talking about the details of what purgatory may or may not be like. And I've, I've always taken that kind of in my ignorance to mean that there was a lot of chatter about purgatory and that people were kind of full of these ideas about what purgatory was like. And there were competing images, perhaps, or debates. Or, but what you're showing is that perhaps that, that's not the case. Perhaps there isn't this deep, problematic, kind of rich tradition of, of images of purgatory. Yes, I think that the images that I have looked at often are quite hellish in many ways and I think when thinking about 
the importance of defining purgatory and the importance of thinking, okay, what's happening here? It would be useful to know what's going on. If if you're then using purgatory as a means, as the church did with indulgences, with things like that, for their own financial benefit a lot of the time, for controlling the populace, purgatory was used in this way. And so you think it would be beneficial to have a, a clear idea of what can happen and that this would be sort of relayed visually. So I think that ambiguity was very surprising. So if we go back to the late 14th century, there's an author that you discuss in your thesis, Federico Fletzi, who attempts an account of purgatory, which I I find really interesting, kind of almost 100 years after Dante writes his Purgatorio, Fletzi addresses the same topic. Could you tell us a bit about Fletzi, what, what he's up to Yes, so Federico Fretzi was a Dominican friar and also a professor of theology. And he had quite a lot of authority. He also became the Bishop of Foligno in 1403. But he wrote this poem, it's his only known poem, the Quadrireggio, and he wrote it between 1394 and 1403. And he's said to have written it on his own in a private cell in Foligno. So it's a poem that is quite long. It's written, it's in four books. It's written in Terza Rima. And it describes Fretzi's journey through these four otherworldly realms, so these realms of the afterlife. Previously, it has not had a great critical reception. I was quite surprised reading about Fretzi, who's often seen to be this very poor imitator of Dante. He's quite disparaged, quite a subjective approach to him. So I was really interested to see what he'd actually written whether he deserved that reputation. And we see in the first book, we have Fretzi in the Regno di Amore, the realm of love, where he is sort of falling in love with a lot of nymphs. He's being shot by Cupid's arrow numerous times. He's stuck in lust and love and eventually he's told that he needs to get out of here and follow Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom, journey to where she lives. In the second book, we move into the Regno di Satanasso, which is a realm of Satan, descend through hell and then to earth where Satan reigns. In the third book, we're in the Regno dei Vizi, the realm of vices. And this is a really interesting realm because it uses Mount Purgatory that Dante has, but it places it within an infernal context. So we have the seven deadly sins being punished here, but Fritz is very clear that this is an infernal realm. And finally, in the fourth book, we reach the Regno delle Virtù, the realm of virtue. This is where we find Purgatory as one of the spheres here. So we have an earthly paradise at the beginning. We move through the four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues. And then we have a heaven very briefly mentioned at right at the end. In the, the realm of speranza, the realm of hope, we have within that realm, which is characterized by fire, we have a sphere of purgatory, which is also a very fiery sphere. And this is very interesting because we have purgatory very, very close to heaven here. It's actually located, this realm is in the heavens. We have purgatory explicitly linked to hope. It's in the realm of hope. So we have a very heavenly conception, really, of a heavenly idea of what purgatory is. 
but we still have fire here. We don't have an independent realm for purgatory. It's contained within this heavenly realm and it's lost that kind of geographical specificity that it has and that independence that it has in Dante. And what is interesting here is that Fretzi meets lots of souls that he recognises themselves there as well, people he said were sinners. And there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of prayer. And one of the really interesting things for me to look at here was the inclusion of prayer in this realm because we've seen that Dante includes souls who pray for those on earth in his purgatory which was very innovative and this was seen as we know by Thomas Aquinas to not be possible and here Fretzi also has souls who pray and given that he was also a Dominican friar like Aquinas this is quite surprising and his souls are praying for the end of their suffering and the difference is that they are praying to the Virgin to end their purgatorial sufferings, whereas Dante's souls are praying for those on earth. And I thought it's an interesting difference here in that Dante's souls are showing humility, they're showing how they have changed, they've been transformed, whereas Fretzi's souls are praying for themselves, for their personal advancement, yes, to get to heaven, but they want their suffering to end. There's less focus on what the realm of purgatory is doing for them and the realm's role in enabling them to transform. And I just thought that was a really interesting comparison between the two writers. Is Fretzi in dialogue with Dante, do you think? I mean, he's writing in Terza Rima. He's clearly kind of taking elements of Dante's vision of purgatory, but playing with it in all sorts of kind of complicated ways, often going against Dante's intentions. I mean, is Dante Fretti's interlocutor or is Dante basically irrelevant in the discussion, do you think? I think, yes, as you say, very clear use of Dante, but he is not mentioned He's not included as an interlocutor in this way. And I think there is little external evidence to suggest that Fretzi was using Dante or knew Dante. So it was quite difficult to think about that influence and um, how he may be using him. But I think there is so much here that is so linked to Purgatorio that I think it must be intentional. And thinking about the spread of the centuries that you examine after Dante, your research goes up to the Council of Trent, right? So what's that, two and a half centuries? Do you see major trends emerging in terms of how the idea of purgatory is changing over that period? Are there big kind of historical markers that you would identify? Or is it a much more diffuse kind of picture? I think it seems to be quite diffuse. I was imagining that the sort of acceptance of purgatory would grow and that we would see more representation of the realm as we go on. But it doesn't seem to show any development in that sense. We've got examples of images, the mid 15th century, and then images from right after Dante was writing the Commedia in the 14th century. And that ambiguity is continuing. I don't think there are many major points where something happens and then purgatory becomes better defined or a change occurs in that definition in in this period in Italy. You know one of the things that I really admire in your work is that those of us who take Dante as our starting point tend to want to amplify the Dantean elements in whatever we're thinking about. 
So we tend to really want to pick up on the way in which Dante has had an influence, in which his ideas have been picked up, in which references to Dante are appearing, especially in this year, the anniversary year of Dante's death. You know, lots of us are wanting to kind of point out how Dante is everywhere. And what I really admire about your work is the kind of, um, I suppose, the bravery really in actually looking at Dante and possibly expecting a kind of afterlife for one of his texts and for his vision and actually putting Dante back in his place in a bigger history. And I think that's such important work. And I think we could all learn from that, or at least those of us who like talking about Dante can, can learn something from that approach. Did you feel that, I'm thinking about Le Goff's account of purgatory, where you have Dante as a kind of pinnacle or an end of the birth of purgatory, right? Did you feel that Dante's really got in the way of us properly understanding the history of purgatory? That's a fun question. I think, I it's think, a loaded question. It's a slightly <laughs> unfair question. I think in an Italian context, possibly, I think when I started looking, there seems to be more work in on French or Spanish representations of purgatory. I think in an Italian context, a lot of people for this period would tend to just think of purgatorio. And so I think maybe when you have such a prominent work, it can sort of maybe put other writers and works a bit in the shadows they get a bit left behind and we might not look at what they are also saying about the afterlife and how it continues and in my thesis I began to see Dante more as an anomaly in this development of purgatory rather than a sort of pinnacle that everything was leading up to and then he consequently shaped purgatory afterwards and I think that shift in thinking was quite interesting just to think about Dante's role and what that means actually for reception how we study reception and sources following him because I'm obviously still using him to study these sources but he has enabled me to do that but I think I, I really wanted to study works that people were not looking at as much because they've still got really interesting things to say about purgatory. That was a great answer. And you don't have to answer this next question. It's a bit of a cheeky one, but I've become really convinced that of all of the parts of Dante's Commedia, the one that has the most resonances for the age that we're living through is purgatory. I think the idea of it as a kind of temporary state of suffering, where we learn about social renewal, where we learn about the conditions in which human beings can remake themselves, purgatory is the place and I just I wondered whether as, as a historian of the reception of Dante's idea of purgatory and of the history of the idea of purgatory somebody who actually knows about it rather than speculating about it as I do I suppose whether you see things in both Dante's idea of purgatory and perhaps the subsequent ideas of purgatory that carry resonances I think so, very much so, because there's so much to think about. With hell and heaven, the state of the soul is more static. The decision is done, that's what's happened. Whereas we on earth, and there is always that link, particularly with Dante's purgatory, with those on earth, we're in a process of learning about ourselves a lot of the time, particularly in times like this. It can really make you think more about yourself and how we live with each other and and I do think purgatory has a lot a lot of important things to speak into 
to the world now. It's interesting because when I was reading about purgatory in a more theological sense, there are theologians in the 20th, 21st centuries who will pick up on Dante and use his purgatory when discussing purgatory. Even Protestant theologians who wouldn't necessarily agree with the existence of purgatory have been talking about it more and arguing for the need for it, actually. So I just found that so interesting that Dante doesn't seem to be so much of a a voice in the period I was looking at. But then now, with the theology that people are talking about purgatory and they're bringing him in and that kind of hopeful purgatory, he's becoming relevant for theologians today. So that was surprising for me to read about that's fascinating isn't it because we tend to think about purgatory as a we you know purgatory is often talked about as a late medieval phenomenon and very historically specific to that moment I mean we know that it has a rich history before that and as you're showing there's a there's an interesting diffuse but nonetheless present and rich afterlife as well after that moment and into the centuries afterwards but we think of it as historically specific as a notion belongs to its time and yet there we are finding it being talked about in these unexpected contexts much, much later. Rebecca, it's been absolutely brilliant talking. I've really enjoyed it. And I know that people listening will have enjoyed it too. People can find your thesis online through the University of Bristol. We'll post a link together with the podcast. But for today, it's just been a real delight to talk all of this over with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's been lovely. I really learned a lot from talking to Rebecca. And I thoroughly recommend taking a look at her research. I also need to say thank you to Esby Sayal, who expertly edited this podcast episode. Now, we've got several more podcasts coming up in the series, so do look out for those. Meanwhile, I'd like to say warm thanks to you for listening.